I'm George. And I'm Alex. And we're the writers of Uncommon Commons. We'd just like to let you know that we'll be taking a short hiatus to salvage our sanity and return with new content as soon as The Void releases us from its grasp. We'll be returning May 17th. However, there will be extra content available in the interim. Including a Q&A, so please send all questions to 0nullstreet at gmail.com. That's the number 0, N-U-L-L-S-T-R-E-E-T, at gmail.com. Oh, and one more thing. The Uncommon Commons now has an official fandom wiki. All transcripts will be uploaded there, day of release. For more information, go to uncommoncommons.fandom.com. Until then, stay stay and remember, remember, nothing nothing is real. Today's stories are The House at the End of Birchwood Lane and The Haversham Estates and Gardens, written by Alex Vitale and George Plank, respectively. Nothing did happen, Jane. Jane? Oh, come on, Jane. Is this another prank? Don't you think taking the apartment building with you is a little overkill? Huh. You know, I never thought about it before, but there really isn't anything to do in the void. Whoa! Hey, I'm walking! Nowhere. Huh. Where did that car come from? Why am I talking to myself? That sounds like... Like one of our stories. Father had warned Elizabeth not to stray too far beyond the bounds of the estate. The tangled growth of the underbrush would have been more than enough to tear at even the most robust of fabrics, and the woods beyond represented the very definition of foreboding. Elizabeth, like any young woman of a particularly rebellious age, ignored what her father said and ventured frequently into the woods. Off she would go, trampling over hill and dale, looking for a peculiar mushroom or a leaf that she might take home and press between the pages of her rhetoric books. She never stayed out late. Even she, a truly wild girl of the woods, knew that the woods were best enjoyed in the daylight, and there might be an exceptionally devilish root that would seek to ensnare her foot and drag her down to the soil. Far be it for anyone to call her a latchkey child, however, she did find herself lacking in accompaniment most days. The borders of the estate were many dozens of miles away from the nearest town, and the only time she would see anyone near her own age would be during one of her parents' social gatherings. In lieu of friends, she would oft keep a journal wherein she would chronologue the day's events and engage in flights of fancy. She would occasionally show her father a sketch she had done of a field mouse using a thin-stemmed mushroom as a parasol, but for the most part she kept her writing as well hidden. She took comfort in knowing that there was maybe one thing in the whole world that was entirely hers. She dotted down a few final thoughts of the day before returning her diary to its place in her chest of drawers and dimmed the oil lamp in her room. As the promise of sleep pulled tight upon her eyelids, she felt herself drifting deep into a slumber's warm embrace. The coals in the heating pan still radiated beneath her blanket, which in turn did its part to hold her in place. Not that she had any intention of getting up at all. That was, of course, until she heard the sound of the footsteps in the hall. 
At first, it was just enough to rouse her from her sleep, but she thought little of it in the moment. In all likelihood, it was just one of the attendants tending to their duties. She gripped the blanket and pulled it up to her shoulders. She nestled her head between her pillows and sought to once again find refuge in sleep. But the steps did not relent. It sounded as if a multitude of people were walking outside her door. She flung the covers to the corner of her bed and rose to meet the sound head on. When she wrestled the sturdy wooden door that separated her room from the rest of the house open, she was aghast to see no one in the hallways at all. Yet still, the sound of feet on the hardwood floors persisted. She closed the door tight and returned to her bed. The moonlight through the crack in her blinds illuminated the clock that she kept in her room. It was just now reaching 4 a.m., and though she gripped her pillow tight around her ears and head, the sound would keep her up throughout the rest of the night. Where am I now? There's a sign. Gnid Park? Actually, I think you'll find it is pronounced need. Oh, well, I've only ever seen it written. Who are you? Oh my, this is embarrassing. Where are all my manners? I'm Albert Need. John, I thought for sure you were going to say something stupid like, Happy New Year! John? Hello? You know I don't like being ignored. John, you put the apartment building back right this minute! I thought I'd be happier about something like this. Nothing around at all. How did we keep ourselves busy before? You know, I have the strangest feeling that I should be telling a story right now. My town isn't really a town. Sure, we call ourselves a town, and we have a courthouse and post office, and a divey little diner where all the local drunks hang out. My parents even run a little farm store. But that is it. Mostly, we're a collection of houses relatively close to each other, maybe a mile or so apart. A census-designated place, or a CDP, I think they call it. The kind of quote-unquote town that teenagers are just itching to get out of. In any little farming hamlet, you'll find abandoned barns and derelict farmhouses, places that once housed animals or people, but have since been forgotten. We had our fair share of those, some of which my friends and cousins and I claimed as clubhouses over the years. The threat of tetanus never really crossed a preteen's mind. Our parents, however, were never particularly keen on our newfound abodes, nor were the people whose property they were on. Most kids in town did this, and everyone knew everyone else's secret base. There was a sense of adventure in having a private little hideaway where you and your friends could hide childhood contraband, though as they grew up, soda stashes were swapped for beer stashes. Sometimes we'd even trade our bases and move into another squad's house. I even took over Jack's when he turned 16. He'd even left a band poster up for me, though I wasn't as big a fan of the loud clergyman as he was. It was pretty much anything goes. That is, with one glaring exception. No one was to go in to the house at the end of Birchwood Lane. It was a sort of unspoken rule that had been handed down from our older siblings, and where they had gotten it from, no one really knew. It was one of those rumors that just kind of weaseled its way into our lives. No murders had been committed there, as far as any of us knew, and it wasn't as though anyone lived there now. Rumors went around, of course, theories of how the house might be haunted or evil. In fourth grade, someone said that the house had been built on a native burial ground. Later, the story would change, and the house was actually built on a relocated cemetery. No one really knew why we avoided it, though. My older brother was the one who told me about it. Rita, you know that little cottage out past the Addisons? The one with the purple shutters? Yeah, I know the place. It's cute. 
just don't go over there, okay? I heard some kids talking at school. It has bad mojo or something. At the time, I hadn't really known what bad mojo meant, and I didn't ask. All I knew was that if it creeped out Jack, it was bad news. Jack's word was generally to be trusted, and given that he told me this as we chatted over a plate of his town-famous snickerdoodles, I would have believed him if he had told me that the house was owned by a child-eating witch. Come to think of it, I usually believed anything he told me, even when it was hard to take him seriously when he wore an apron that read, Nice Rack, on the center of the chest. Still, I took his lackluster warning to heart, and passed it on to my friends. Their siblings, or cousins in some cases, told them the same. It was standard procedure to avoid the place like the plague. School years and summers alike went by, and pretty soon I'd made it to the end of sophomore year without ever setting foot in the house at the end of Birchwood Lane. You ready for this? Ready as I'll never be. That's the spirit. What's going on over there? Run it by me again? We keep getting letters from... somewhere, right? Right. So there must be something outside. Now off you go. Okay. John! That was strangely familiar. Is that something that has happened before? Am I getting deja vu? Thanks a lot, Mr. Need. What a nice guy. And he gave me this turkey leg for free. Incredible. Nom nom nom. You know, when you hear about a place over and over again, you start to build up expectations in your head. I gotta say, it lived up to the hype. Okay, okay. I spy something white. Oh, come on, aren't you gonna guess, Jay? Oh, that's right. That's the thing about the void. It all comes back around, doesn't it? The sound eventually died down, and Elizabeth was able to relax her arms. She yawned and was just about to fall asleep when there came a rapping from her chamber door. One of the family's attendants, Mrs. Pettigrew, entered and despite Elizabeth's protest, readied the young miss for breakfast. Though she tried her best to muster through the morning, Elizabeth's father took notice of her condition. Elizabeth, darling, is everything all right? Hmm? Oh, I didn't get much sleep last night. I could tell. You practically have your nose in the morning porridge. Elizabeth's eyes opened fully, and she jolted upright in her chair. She yawned and tried best to maintain her composure. Yes, well... I'm surprised that anyone was able to get any sleep last night with all that trampling about. Her mother and father exchanged worried glances before turning their attention back to Elizabeth. Trampling, dear? her mother asked. I didn't hear any trampling. Nor did I, Muffin. Seriously? I thought that someone must have let the horses free of the stables. You all didn't hear any of that. I'm afraid not, mother said, through clenched teeth and shifting eyes. Whew. How curious, Elizabeth yawned out. The rest of breakfast passed with little deviation from the norm. Elizabeth struggled with her lessons as she could barely keep her eyes open. Eventually, her teacher, sensing the futility of the situation, relinquished any hope of teaching infinitives and dismissed the class for the day. Elizabeth set out onto the lawn to find her favorite leisure spot. The shady seclusion offered by the large peach tree in the middle of the yard was cozy, and no sooner did Elizabeth take a seat that she dozed off. Elizabeth had never slept a deeper sleep, but it was not to last. She was stirred from her nap by a sound that was not immediately apparent to her. At first, it sounded like a small collection of stones being shaken together, but that wasn't quite right. Like the night before, the sound droned on and on. To Elizabeth, the sound was more akin to gravel being ground under heel, but 
That was very unlikely. She looked around and saw the simple dirt paths that marked the estates. They led all the way to the wood and brick steps of the servants' entrance. But she did not see what was causing that noise. She stood and ran to the house, calling for Mrs. Pettigrew the entire way. She beckoned the confused attendant to follow her, and when her pace was not sufficient, Elizabeth took her by the hand and dragged her out onto the lawn. "'What is that noise?' Elizabeth demanded to know. "'What noise, miss?' "'The, the noise. Like rocks.' "'Rocks, miss? You honestly can't hear it?' "'Afraid not.' Elizabeth released her hand and stood in the field, listening to the never-ceasing sound of steps. Mrs. Pettigrew excused herself to finish preparations for dinner. Elizabeth retreated into the manor, which offered a moment's respite from the strange noises that plagued her, and seemingly only her. At the end of the day, she recounted these strange occurrences in her journal. How she had barely gotten any sleep the night before, and how strange and foreign the sounds on the lawn were to her. She tried her best to sketch something before she went to bed. A girl holding a candle. She must have been more tired than she realized because the proportions were all slightly off. Dissatisfied with the quality of her own work, she scratched it out and tore it out of her journal. She didn't have time to properly dispose of it, so she left it on the nightstand. She stowed the diary and crawled into bed. At first it seemed like she just might sleep through the night. She was already exhausted from the night before, but... The strange occurrences meant that she was more on edge than she had ever been before. If the floorboard so much as creaked, it would have been enough to set her back on edge. Her shallow sleep was interrupted once again by the sound of steps on the floor outside of her room. There was only one set of steps this time, but they were heavy, as if someone was wearing a pair of thick boots. Curiosity got the better of her, and she once again rose out of bed to investigate. When she opened the door, she could not see the cause of the footfalls, but she did spy something that made her hair stand on end. A circle of white light lingered on different points on the wall and seemed to be moving further and further down the hall. Elizabeth gasped and the point reacted. The light sped from one point directly into her eyes, nearly blinding her in the process. The sound of footsteps seemed to get closer as the light moved from Elizabeth's face to her room. The light fell on her scratched-out drawing. In her movement to the door, it must have fallen onto the floor. The steps moved past Elizabeth, and with a force unseen, picked the picture up and moved it into the hallway. It was held aloft against the wall and remained there, as the light and the steps seemed to move in tandem further and further away. Elizabeth moved to the drawing and attempted to grab it from its new fixed point, but was rebuffed. Her hand hit something unseen. She pressed her hand against it, and it felt like glass. Though to her point of view, there was nothing surrounding it at all. She struggled in vain to retrieve the drawing, but ultimately tired herself out even more than she already was. She returned to bed and once again tried to go to sleep, but every time her eyes would shut, the steps would start again. At around four in the morning, they were joined by another sound, one that may have been similar to a brook or a river let loose in the house. When Elizabeth strained, she was just able to make out the individual sounds that comprised it, a mass murmur all at once, a collection of voices and accents, and occasionally languages. That were unfamiliar to her. Of this she was certain, but the overlap was so great that she was unable to pick out any individual words. Not that individual words would help. It was the collective that stopped her from getting any sleep. Is that a, a street sign? Null Street. Apropos, I guess. Wait, are those... They look just like our apartment building. Negative one, negative two, negative seven... What's going on in there? 
Oh, God. There's a giant hole in the floor. And the basement is completely flooded. Wait, what is that? Oh, God. That's... That's me and John. Did we... Did we drown? Are we dead? That... No, that can't be right. Gross, my socks are wet. Ugh, there's sand in my shoes. Hey, don't pour that out here. Look at sand all over the floor. I said we should leave our shoes by the front door so we don't track in anything from the outside. Right, because I'm getting real sick of cleaning the void out of the carpet. You're like this every single time. Well, I, I should, should be going. And then, it was summer again. All my friends went about their own business. Some of them went to stay with family over those long three months. Others took jobs at the sleepaway camp that was two hours north of us. Katie Scanton even took a trip to Europe. Jack had long since moved out. This place is too sleepy for me, kiddo, he told me. He was baking again. He always baked when things got serious. I've got to get out on my own. What about the farm store? Mom and Dad can't run it on their own. I leaned my head on the counter, watching as he mixed in the pie filling. Cinnamon, apples, a little bit of nutmeg, and vanilla. He spooned it into the crust. They've got you, he told me. And you can come visit me in Chicago. Besides, I'll be back around sometimes. He hadn't come back around since two Christmases ago. For better or for worse, I was alone. I was left predominantly to my own devices, save for the couple of mutts that we had running around. It was back in June that I made my big mistake. It was a dreary, overcast, sticky sort of day, but not rainy, which made it perfect weather for a little good old-fashioned adventuring. Well, perfect might be a bit of an overstatement, but I was bored. I took my walking stick and left the dogs at home, choosing a solitary lifestyle for the afternoon. I marched through the swampy woods in my rain boots for a bit, until I came out beside the road. I decided to follow it. I knew where most of the roads in the area went, but they looked so much different on foot, so I wasn't exactly sure of my location. I walked for a while, stopping to catch the occasional toad just to say I did. I carried one with me for a while, actually. Called him, very creatively, Mr. Hops. He stayed snugly in my hand until we came to an intersection. The road sign was hidden partially by tree overgrowth, but I could just make out the rusted words. Birchwood Lane. It was a dilapidated dirt road marred with potholes and dirty puddles, stretching through overgrowth and patchworked with clumps of weeds. At the very end of the road, an off-white silhouette against the forest stood a little house with purple shutters. The house itself was practically pristine, with even siding and perfectly peaked awning. It looked inviting, comforting. It was Granny's house in a fairy tale, an idyllic little cottage in the middle of the forest. The world seemed quiet here. There was no sounds of birds nor crickets. Even the wind didn't blow. I stood for a long moment, staring down Birchwood Lane. Then, hesitantly, I moved forward. Before my foot even touched down again, Mr. Hop struggled free from my hand and leapt away. I panicked and tried to grab for him before he hit the ground, but I wasn't fast enough. He hit the dirt with a wet thwack and my stomach lurched. He struggled for only a second, wriggling feebly, before going still. I bit back tears, wishing I had left him where I'd found him. Solemnly, I brought his tiny body to the side of the road and buried him as best I could, trying not to cry over the toad I'd known for two seconds. My own wet sniffles were the only thing breaking the silence. I plucked a dandelion and placed it over Mr. Hop's shallow grave, mumbling a few apologetic words. Why he'd chosen to jump from my hand, I didn't know. Maybe he knew something I didn't. I was about to retrieve my walking stick and head home, 
but when I reached for it, my hand hit mud. I turned, expecting to see the stick where I dropped it, but it was gone. I stood, scanning the area. Maybe I'd thrown it in the mad scramble to save Mr. Hopps's life. Just then, I spotted it, a little way down the road. It was lying in the middle of the road, closer to the house. Puzzled, I went to fetch it. Rita! Jack's voice sounded from behind me. I turned, surprised, but found no one there. Wishful thinking, probably. A desire for companionship. That, or the wind, was starting to pick up. If that were the case, I still couldn't hear it. Shaking it out of my head and pointedly looking away from the toad gravesite, I retrieved my walking stick. At least, I went to. Where are you going in such a hurry? little town. Someone might even call it idyllic. I'm not even sure what that means. Welcome to Fairview. I must say, you look a little out of place. What brings you to our perfect little town? Well, I was telling a story to myself, and I guess I just stumbled onto it. Oh, well, spin us a yarn, won't you? The noises and odd occurrences continued night after night. She thought that perhaps, once she had gotten used to it, it might just be something she could live with but the noises continued to grow louder by the night. Every night, like clockwork, the light would appear in the hallway, occasionally stopping to collect something from her room and place it along the wall. More random pieces of paper, a hairbrush, even a couple of her stockings. When she would bring these occurrences to the attention of her attendants or parents, they would feign ignorance and claim there was nothing there at all. For a while, she was able to find comfort under the shade of the peach tree. In the open air, the phantom sounds were much more palatable. One day, she made her way towards the trunk, she was stopped dead in her tracks. She felt as though she had run into something at about waist height. There was nothing presently there, but if she tried to move closer to the tree, she could feel it digging into her. Perhaps, she thought, if this tree couldn't offer the respite that she desired, she could find peace in the woods. She hurried as she previously would towards the edge of the estate, nearing closer to the thick undergrowth. Just as she was about to cross the threshold of the estate, she once again was met by an invisible barrier. She raised her arms and pounded fruitlessly against it again and again. She ran further down and tried to enter the woods at almost every point along the grounds, and at every point she was stopped in her tracks. She screamed out, demanding to know what was going on. Her father, who had been nearby entertaining a visitor, heard his daughter's plea and soon joined her at her side. "'Whatever is the matter, Muffin?' "'Father!' Elizabeth exclaimed. "'Father, please, try to enter the woods.' "'Why would I—' "'Please, Father, it's urgent.' He saw the earnestness in her eyes and made for a clearing at the edge of the wood stopping only to step over a shallow ditch as he crossed the threshold unabated. Elizabeth tried to follow him, but she could not. She fell to her knees and began to weep. Her father hurried to his daughter's side and held her tight. He knew not what plagued her, but he knew that she needed help. He carried her to her bedroom and laid her down on the bed. Please try to get some rest, Elizabeth. The instructor says your grades are slipping and thinks that you might not be getting enough sleep. He gently closed the door behind him as he left. No sooner did he leave the room that the noises began again. A cacophony of voices and steps, impossible to ignore, all echoed around her room. When night came again, they were joined by snapping noises and bright flashes of light. Over time, certain voices began to become clearer and clearer than others. She could clearly hear her name in the mouths of the invisible strangers. Her eyes developed dark circles, and she grew gaunt from barely eating. 
She had very little strength to get out of bed at all. On her final evening in the manor, she lay in bed. The voices had subsided for just a moment, and the floating light had reappeared on the walls. She didn't even rise to watch it anymore. The novelty had worn thin, and now she just wanted it all to stop. What did get her attention was when her chest of drawers began to open. Some unseen hand grasped her journal and began to move it out of the room. This was too far. Elizabeth grabbed the journal with both hands and fought to hold on to it. She screamed and thrashed about, hoping to shake it loose from this incorporeal grasp. Her screams rang through the manor, and in a matter of moments, her door flung open. Two men in white coats came rushing into her room. In a moment of surprise, she released the book, which continued floating away down the halls. The men grabbed Elizabeth and started to drag her into the hall. They passed her father and another man, who she recognized as the one her father had been showing around the estate a few days prior. Darling, this is Dr. Ector. He's in charge of the rest home in town. We both think that you need help, and he claims that his facilities will be able to help you. She continued screaming and thrashing, trying to free herself from the vice-like grip she was in. This is for your own good, Elizabeth, her father said before she was dragged away down the halls, past all of her belongings, now curated and on display. The steps and voices died down, and one voice seemed to take their place. Now, just up ahead, we have the bedroom of the young Elizabeth Haversham, perhaps the main reason you're all here, and why the Haversham estate is considered one of the most haunted locales on the continent. Towards the end of her time in the estate, she claimed to hear sounds and feel things that weren't there. She fell ill and could barely take care of herself, not eating, having unkept hair. It's all clearly detailed in her diary, which historians have poured over for hundreds of hours. But, probably the most exciting is that some security guards claim to have interacted with the ghost of Miss Haversham. Items would go missing from their place on the wall and end up back in her quarters. One time, Elizabeth's journal went missing from its place and was found back in its chest of drawers. When a team tried to collect the journal, they felt some resistance and claimed to hear some ghostly shrieks coming from the room. Her father was the one who signed her over to the asylum in Albert's Point. He was so sure they could help his little girl that he was willing to do anything. As we now know, it was here that Elizabeth met her end. They conducted many inhumane and experimental tests on her, until her body could not take it anymore. Up next, we have the family dining room, followed by the gift shop. All these apartments look so similar. They're all so different. There's smoke coming out of that one that just says, Full Moon Secret Group? And that one's just shape-shifting. And that one's a blaze. Getting close now, isn't it? Better wrap things up. When I turned back up the road, the stick seemed to have moved farther away, like someone had kicked it out from under my hand. It now lay in the dirt about ten or so feet from the front steps of the cottage, old lacquer shutting off onto the gravel. With a grumble, I chased after it. Rita! This time, Jack called from my right, in the forest. He couldn't have been more than a few yards away. I bolted upright and squinted in the direction of the woods. Nothing but trees and logs. The hair at the back of my neck rose up. Wind or not, I was getting really freaked out. Walking stick be damned. I was giving up and going home. Adventuring could wait for another day. As I turned, though, something caught my eye. My walking stick had moved itself again. This time, it had gravitated to the front deck of Birchwood Cottage. It stood upright on its end, slotted between two floorboards. The carved eagle head at its top peered at me from afar. At this point, I turned and bolted in the other direction. Had I been scared by a cane? 
Yes. Was it a cowardly move? Maybe. I didn't care. Then and there, I broke into a dead sprint, tearing back up Birchwood Lane. Shifting in the gravel, my body fell out beneath me. Damp dirt made for poor traction, and before I could run back the way I came, I hit the ground. Hard. My ankle was the only thing that twisted the way I wanted to go, and its tendons snapped in protest as I missed my mark. The pain seared before I even met the mud. It took a minute for me to regain composure. My ankle throbbed in sharp bursts of pain as I picked myself up off the ground, and for just a moment the world spun around me. I coughed once, twice, and then got my bearings. It would be one hell of a task to get home, but it wasn't as if I had cell reception out here. It was equally unlikely that a passerby would find me. Rubbing my eyes with one hand, I reached the other out to steady myself as I rose. My palm met with smooth, painted wood. I unstuck my knuckles from the corner of my eyes and looked up. The house at the end of Birchwood Lane stood directly in front of me. My right hand was placed firmly on its front step. From my place at the bottom of the stairs, I couldn't see the top porch. I could, however, see my walking stick. It still stood upright, now propped against the front door. The ache that bloomed up my leg as I shifted to my knees told me that the walk home would be painful on its own. A crutch would have been nice. Or a walking stick. The front steps of Birchwood were agonizing to climb up, but my cane was right there. My options were slim. I could crawl home, or limp out into the woods to find a branch. Or I could take the thing right in front of me. Ripe for the picking. My hands and arms did most of the work as I scaled the steps. My reward was sweet. It took some serious wobbling before I was able to stand up, and I couldn't put too much weight on the stick for fear that the old wood would snap. But it took the pressure off my bad ankle. It took some maneuvering, though. As I tested my weight, my balance fell off kilter and I teetered. There was no rust on the hinges, not a chip out of the paint. It looked inviting. Not inviting enough, though, to make me want to stay. I turned and hobbled back down the porch. When something hit me. The wet, earthy smell of the forest had dissipated. In its place was a sweetness, warm and comforting. Familiar. Cinnamon and apple and a little bit of nutmeg, with an overtone of vanilla. Rita, Jack called. Warm light poured from the now-open front door of the cottage, flooding over me as I turned back. In the doorway stood my brother, complete with that stupid apron that hung around his neck. He wore a goofy grin and a clean oven mitt on his left hand, and leaned on the doorframe. "'I've been calling you for like an hour, kid. Where you been?' He looked me over, but his smile never faltered. "'What happened to you?' "'You're supposed to be in Chicago,' I said dumbly. "'You never visit!' "'Chicago, Rita, I've been here the whole time!' It's you who never visits. Come on, let's get that leg fixed. Without waiting for an answer, Jack came and lifted my arm over his shoulder, taking my walking stick and supporting my weight instead. He led me through the front door, and just before he shut it, the birds started to sing again. The door then closed, and its hinges creaked. Well, that was quite the tale, Mr. Doe. Tell me, are you just passing through, or has our little town won you over? You know, I wasn't sure when I got here. But now that I've seen it, I can't imagine why anyone would ever leave Fairview. <laughs> Our thoughts exactly. Now, full disclosure, Mr. Doe, there is somewhat of a tourist attraction on the outskirts of town. Not many people make it back. It tends to have free rain at night, but we're all used to it by now. Just thought you should know. Oh. All right. My buddy Albert had one of those in his park. Yeah, I went on this ride with Harv... I think about it, Harv never got off that ride. Anyway, I'm sold. This is way more appealing than Jane's timeshare pitch. Qu quick question, though. 
really just a small thing. Are there any hardware stores in town? Of course there's a hardware store, Mr. Doe. How else would we barricade our windows? Mr. Doe? No, thank you. I'm not going back to one of those ever again. It's been my pleasure talking with you, but I gotta go. What is that mysterious ticking noise? Actually, it's more of a beeping. Jane! John, where have you been? Uh, Need Park? Uh-huh. Well, I've been at the apartment building the whole time. Well, an apartment. Well, a group of apartments. A flock of apartments. So you know the way back home? None of them were ours. At least, not anymore. What's that up ahead? Looks like a mailbox. It says, outgoing to zero Knoll Street? I didn't see a zero, just negatives. I think I might have something to put in. Sort of just came to me. Wouldn't you know it? Me too. Where do you think it goes? Does it matter? John, looks like the mail's here. Uncommon Commons is a podcast. It was written and recorded by George Plank and Alex Vitale. Special thanks to Alastair Stewart for providing the voice of Albert Need in today's episode. You can find him at Alastair Stewart on Twitter and visit at EA Podcasts also on Twitter for his additional projects. Thank you again. Our theme song was composed by Charles Adam Robinson and our logo designed by Sam Vitale. Our social media manager is Rebecca Tewksbury. Follow us at un underscore commons on Twitter, uncommon underscore commons on Instagram, or email us directly at zeronullstreet at gmail.com. Stay. And remember, nothing nothing is is real. real.